Yes, Lord, we do adore you. We're grateful that we get to study you. We're grateful we live in a nation in which we can freely study you and know you. Lord, that whatever oppression we may face in this country is minuscule and compared to what else goes on in this world today and what has gone throughout history for Christians. We're grateful to be able to look at John tonight. We're grateful to even have a translation in our language. There are people who don't. We're grateful for the wealth of study and scripture that we have to look at, to understand you, to know you, to love you better. Lord, would our study not be a mindless exercise, an exercise that we're not engaged in with our hearts, but just for the gathering of facts or data. Lord, we worship you as Lord. And it's in that light that we approach you to increase our knowledge of you. That we might love you better and be changed by that very knowledge. Like Martha, we do it confess that you are the Christ. That you are the Son of God. That you are the one who was to come into the world. Reveal yourself to us like you did to her. Would you speak to us in power and in might? Would you do mighty deeds before us? Not because our faith requires them, but because we love you and trust you and believe in you. And we know, we know that it's your will to give new life. To make this world what it was intended to be. To redeem it. To change us into your image, Jesus, by the power of your spirit, so that we might look like you, we might be obedient to your Father like you were. I pray all these things in your name tonight. Amen. Amen. Well, like I said, I have the privilege of preaching John 11 tonight, which is really one of the greatest passages in all of John and probably in all of Scripture. John 11, the story of Lazarus. Lazarus, a story that not only tells us about life and, and what life is, but also is a foreshadowing of the death and resurrection that is about to come. Remember, we ended last week in John 10, and Jesus went away out of Judea, across the Jordan, back to where John was baptizing at the beginning, because he knew to stay in Judea would sign his own death warrant, wouldn't it? So the opposition had grown that strong. And so we open chapter 11 with this. Now a certain man was sick. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was sick. So this setting is interesting because it opens up this story telling us about this family from Bethany. And this family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, there's three of them that we know of in this story. 
And what's interesting is we, it's very clear that John expects his readers to have some knowledge of who this person is, right? He expects that, hey, when I talk about Mary, you know the one that wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. You know that Mary. It's expected that the readers know who this person is. Now, what's interesting about that is, of course, John's the latest gospel. It makes you wonder if John expected that we would have read the other gospels before we read his it's also interesting because John actually tells the story of Mary wiping the Lord's feet with her hair. It's a story that shows up in all four Gospels, but he hasn't told it yet. He won't tell it until chapter 12. So he's alluding to something he hasn't even told us yet, and yet he expects us to know. Interesting to see those connections between the Gospels. So the setting is Bethany, and this is a city that's just a few miles away from Jerusalem. It's right in the heart of Judea, right? So close to Jerusalem, the capital, where all Jesus' opposition seems to be sourced from is Jerusalem, the, the head city. So it says this, The sisters sent word to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he who you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, I told you before, as we're studying John, glory uh, typically in John refers to Jesus' crucifixion. When it talks about the Son of God being glorified, it's about his crucifixion. That is his glory in the Gospel of John. So what's Jesus alluding to is that whatever stems from this could be his very crucifixion. But also in John, what glory talks about, usually when we think of glory, we kind of think of, of our praise of him, right? This, it's like God's glory, and we praise him for his glory. But what glory means, again, specifically in John, is actually God's revelation. It's his self-disclosure to us. His glory... When it talks about seeing God's glory, it's less about our response in the Gospel of John that we should all bow and worship, which is true. But it's actually about God showing us who he is. So when Jesus says this sickness will not end in death, but the Son of God would be glorified by it, what's he saying? I will be revealed for who I am. This sign will point to who I am the Son of God will be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? John tells us that Jesus loves this family. He has a special, unique love for this family. And it is that love that drives him to stay where he is. Now, that should be counterintuitive to us, right? Mm -hmm. We should think, okay, if Jesus really loves his family, he should be running their way, right? He should be running to the rescue. That's kind of the image we have. Like, Jesus has got to run away right now and just like fix this whole problem. Mm. And it says, no, he loves them, so he stays where he's at days. It's interesting. 
It should be a puzzle to us as we continue to read. Then after this, then after this, these two days, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Jesus waits the two days, and, and it's almost supernatural, right, as we read on. It's almost supernatural that he knows Lazarus has died. In fact, it looks like he spent those two days waiting to ensure Lazarus was dead. He was waiting his father's hour, wasn't he? He was waiting for his father to tell him when to go so that the Son of God might be glorified. And the time came that Lazarus had died and Jesus knew that that hour had come. And then it was time to show who he was. It was time to go and be glorified and do what his father had set him out to do. That's his love. That is the love he talks about in verse 5, is that he was willing to wait, let his friend taste death, so that he might ensure their faith forever. Can you imagine the magnitude of this sign? Can you imagine what it would do to your faith? Jesus loves them in a way that is beyond our human ability to comprehend, and he does more than we could possibly fathom in this case. He waits. He waits for God's timing. Let us go to Judea again, the disciples said to him. Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Remember at the end of John 10, they sought to stone him. He said, I and the Father are one. So it wasn't long before that Jesus was real close to death and and it's very obvious that the disciples have, have figured out that Jesus, if he keeps making appearances the way he does, he's not got long for this world. Here's their response. Sorry, Jesus responds first. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What's Jesus referring to is the day. The day of his ministry is fast closing. Are there not twelve hours in the day in which to work? Jesus says, I am here to work and I will work to the last. I will continue to work as long as the Father has set before me a task. He says, the night is coming. And anyone who walks in the night will stumble. So we should walk while the light of the world is here. It's not only Jesus saying, I am going to work, but he's encouraging the disciples, be at work while I am with you. Then he said, this is Jesus speaking, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. 
and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. See, Jesus knew what was going to take place. He understood that what was about to transpire would not only be his greatest sign to date, but would be the very thing that signed his death warrant. The disciples misunderstand, which is typical in John, right? We've seen this misunderstanding motif over and over and over. From enemies of Jesus, from disciples, from people close to him, all across the board, there's these kind of ironies that play. And here's another one. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. This is our introduction to Thomas and, and his character. I love Thomas. I think he's gotten an unfair shake in the history of the church as the doubter. We'll talk about it again when we get to John 20 at the climax of the gospel. John, uh, Thomas's statement is the climax of the gospel of John in John 20. But here in John 11... Listen to his bravery, his courage, his exhortation to his fellow disciples. Let's all go and die. See, they understand the risk that Jesus is taking. That thing, they do understand. They understand that Jesus is not going to get many more chances to go into the establishment of Judaism and, and condemn it and rebuke it and say, I'm here without them responding. Hostily. Right? And so Thomas knows this. Hey, if he's going to die, why don't we all go die with him? Of course, the irony of this statement, if it's your first time reading the gospel, you don't know, but for those of us who've read it time and time again, the irony is, of course, that Jesus dies alone. And none do share his fate. In fact, his disciples all abandon him at the cross. Jesus dies alone. And it's actually in John alone we see the beloved disciple right at the foot of the mother of Jesus, Mary. Behold your son, behold your mother. The other gospels, Jesus is painted completely alone with no one there. But these close disciples all Abandon him. That's the irony of Thomas's statement. He's so ready to die here, but when the time comes, no one can be found to stand up for Jesus. So, they go willingly with Jesus. Verse 17, So when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days, Badanea, where he was probably staying across the Jordan, the part where John was baptizing at the beginning, was actually about a four-day journey. So this is not, uh, you know, Jesus delaying any longer or doing any kind of, you know, uh, specific theological reality he's trying to hold in with four days or something like that. It's a four-day journey. Jesus goes to see Lazarus because the time has come and and it's four days, four days of this family mourning and grieving their brother. 
four days of him being in the tomb, they were buried in Jewish culture on the day of their death. So they'd be buried the same day. Four days he'd spent in the tomb. Now it says, verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary. Uh-oh. That would be the Jews from Jerusalem, right? Now, we don't know what's going to happen, but we have seen when the crowds of the Jews get together, it's usually not in Jesus' favor, is it? They'd come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha shows great honor to Jesus and leaves the grief of her household to go out to meet him, her teacher, her rabbi. It's a great honor for her to leave her grief and go to meet him outside the village. And Martha says this to Jesus. I love this. In her grief and her faith, she says, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. It's interesting. Because that line, it kind of leads us to believe that maybe Martha has an idea of what's about to happen. Maybe she's even asking, Jesus, would you raise him from the dead? I guess that's possible. I don't know if that's the case, though, because remember what will happen in just a little while is Jesus will tell her to remove the stone from the tomb, and she'll say, Lord, he already stinks. Why would we do that? I think it's just a confession of faith. Even now, in my heartbroken condition, even now with my brother in the grave, I still trust that God gives you whatever you ask. She has no idea of the magnitude of what Jesus is about to do. But she still trusts him. Even now, I still trust you, even though my brother is dead. Jesus says this to her, you're... This is a great ambiguous statement, isn't it? Your brother will rise again. Now we know, we know from reading that Jesus is going with the intention to wake him out of sleep, right? Martha doesn't. Your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then explains resurrection and life. He explains what he means by that. He is the resurrection because the one who believes in him will live even if he dies. Resurrection. They die. He will give them life. That's future, isn't it? That's a future proclamation. I will raise them again on the last day. But I'm also the life. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. 
He is the life. That's the present. Life began when you believed in Jesus and will not end. Though our bodies may fade, the essence of our being, our, our souls live on. And we will one day be reunited, because He is the resurrection, with those new bodies that we will once have when we are all resurrected. Jesus explains, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Martha gives this climactic confession, and it's interesting because in the other Gospels we see it on the lips of Peter, don't we? Here, Martha says it. Martha says it. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ. The Son of God, even he who comes into the world. She believes. She believes in his identity, that he's the Messiah, the coming one, the Son of God. And after she'd said this, she went away, and she called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to Jesus. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, thinking she was going to the tomb to weep there. So Jesus, for whatever reason, he's decided to stay out where Martha had met him. Maybe he's keeping a low profile. Maybe. Maybe he just wants to meet with the sisters to privately grieve with them, have a special moment with them as their teacher. We don't know. It doesn't say. But we do know whatever the intention was, whatever is going to happen now is going to be very public. Because all these people who would come down to console this family are going to be part of what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. They walk with Mary and they meet Jesus. It says, Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. She says the exact words that Martha says. Identical. Come back to that. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? The word in Greek behind deeply moved is an interesting word because it without fail, invariably, when applied to humans, means indignant. He was angry. Jesus was angry. I've heard a lot of different explanations of Jesus' anger in this moment. And only, I think, there's only one that truly makes sense of what's going on. I've heard that Jesus is angry at Mary and Martha's lack of faith. How does that fit? I see nothing but their faithfulness portrayed to their Lord. 
Well, Jesus, I think, is angry at what death has done to humanity. He is face to face with humanity's greatest enemy and the pain and grief that it inflicts on people. And he's angered by it, as we should be. That is right. Jesus cannot abide the sin and destruction and death that has haunted humanity, and he is angry at it. So where have you laid him? He goes to see his friend. They said to him, Lord, come and see. They're bringing him to the tomb. Jesus wept. Jesus is angry at the sin and destruction. And when he sees his friend, the tomb where his friend is laid, he weeps. Now, going back to what I said earlier, this is an aside, but I think it's worth mentioning because it's something that's very meaningful to me. I love this passage with Mary and Martha because it reminds me of the uniqueness of relationship God has with every individual. Jesus responds to them completely differently. And yet, in the passage, Mary and Martha say the identical thing to Jesus. They respond exactly the same way to this situation. Lord, if only you'd been here, our brother would still be alive. And Jesus gives each of them what they need. And it is not the same thing. This passage always reminds me of that. See, Jesus knows Martha needs theology. And he gives her a great theology lesson. No, I am the resurrection and the life. That's what Martha needs. What does Mary need? Mary needs someone to grieve with her. And so he weeps alongside her. He mourns with her mourning. At every level of relationship, God speaks to us uniquely. God speaks to us uniquely as individuals. He speaks to us uniquely as communities. He speaks to us uniquely as churches. He speaks to us uniquely as cities. He speaks to us uniquely as nations. He speaks to us uniquely as creation itself. At every level, God is in relationship uniquely with different people. And we can come and have the exact same problem, and we can say the exact same things, and God intimately knows what we need. Intimately knows what we require to be comforted, rebuked, to be chained, changed, completely by His Spirit when we need encouragement, when we need edification, when we need to be torn down, when we need to be humble. God knows. God knows. 
and he responds in kind to what each of his people need. And this passage is so beautiful because I am reminded in this scripture of that reality, but I'm also reminded how impoverished we would be if we did not have Jesus' response to Martha or Mary. How impoverished we would be if we did not hear the great theology of I am the resurrection and the life. What if we didn't hear that? What if we didn't hear that Jesus was the answer and we just saw him weeping alongside Mary? We would be impoverished. We'd be impoverished if we had the great theology lesson and didn't see the compassion of God. That he would weep alongside Mary. That Jesus was the true human, moved by grief, just like one of us. A great high priest who knows our struggles and our sufferings. We would miss out on much if we didn't see Jesus' great compassion. grateful that the Lord included both for us, that we would know him more fully, know how he responds to us, not despise when he responds to us differently than someone else, because we know he knows us. We know his relationship with us is unique and special and personal to us. I'm so glad we serve that God. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? If only he had been here. Their faith only extends so far. They see him as a miracle worker, don't they? If only he'd been here, he could have worked his magic, fixed things. Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench. For he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. It doesn't say so, but Martha would have been the one to tell them to remove the stone. She believes. When he had said these things, he cried out, Sorry, excuse me, back up. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus knows all he has to do in prayer. So awesome, I love this. Jesus doesn't have to say, God, would you do this? 
he knows his father's in. All he has left to do is thank his dad. Thank you. I know what's about to happen. I know you will receive what I'm about to do. Thank you. I want everyone around to know that you sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Lazarus is raised. As we've talked about, we have an example now in John 5. Those who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of God and they will come alive. Here's the example. At the voice of Jesus, Lazarus is raised. At a command of Christ, he is raised. Jesus does not touch him. Jesus does not get near him. At the very word of God, Lazarus is risen. That's important to remember. Jesus is that very word, is he not? John 1 would say he is. And we're left with this ominous conclusion. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him, of course. Can you imagine? Can you fathom seeing that? Can you imagine being at a funeral and seeing someone rise up out of the casket? Life-changing. That's what they experience. How could they not believe? Well, they have to be a sheep. That's what Jesus said in John 10. So many believed in him. But, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. That's not belief, is it? Every time we've seen someone go to the Pharisees to report Jesus, what Jesus had done, it is not because they want the Pharisees to believe. No, it's because they want them to be aware of how they should respond to the menace that is Jesus. That's our passage Jesus comes. He does this great miracle very publicly. His greatest sign. His last sign before he's crucified in the Gospel of John. Many believe, but many go to the Pharisees to report. And this will be the last report the Pharisees receive. As I reflected on this passage, I thought about the upper room discourse and some of the things Jesus says there. And I'd never considered this as I was studying this week and reading commentaries. It was such a beautiful thought, and I'd never considered it. There's this part where Jesus says, 
that I, I now call you friends. I now call you friends. And there is no greater love than this, that a friend lay down his life, or that a man lay down his life for his friend. When Jesus said that, we, we know he's talking about all of those who would come to be his friends, of course. And he's talking to the disciples in that upper room with him. But I wonder, I wonder if in the context of John, where we've just been reading, he's thinking of Lazarus. See, because Jesus knows that in order for Lazarus to receive his life back, it will cost Jesus his own. Jesus could have stayed out of Judea. He could have left Lazarus in the grave for his own safety, for his own protection, for his own life. He could have stayed out of this hot zone, this hot bed of activity that would come to, to bring him to ruin, right? That was their whole goal. They've been seeking to kill Jesus for a long time now. And Jesus could have just said, no, it's not worth it. Let's just stay away, stay safe. I don't need to go. Lazarus, he's died. That's sad. Let's grieve him. And then we'll all get on with our life. No, Jesus goes to Judea again. And he goes to Judea again knowing that Lazarus' life will cost him his own. No, there is no greater love than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus does it. Jesus does it. He trades his life for Lazarus's. Lazarus is worth that to him. Jesus is life. He says, and life itself lays down in submission to death so that others might find life. How's that for a story? Jesus is life, and he gives himself up. thought about life a lot this week, about its preciousness, about the beauty of life, and the beauty of new life, to bring people together, to unite them, to wash away bitterness and anger and, and grief, preciousness, new life. Tomorrow, my third baby will be born early in the morning. Her name is Sophia Marie. Sophia means wisdom and man. What more could I need in this time than that in this world we live in? Marie means bitter. It comes from a great story in the Old Testament, the book of Ruth. Naomi, remember, is bitter 
with how the Lord has treated her, and she changes her name to Mara. Marie is French for the Hebrew Mara. And of course, great names, even when they have bad meanings, like, for example, Jacob, which means deceiver. You don't name them after the bad thing. You remember the story of God in that life. And of course, in the story of Naomi, Mara, we don't remember her bitterness. We remember the way God provided for her. Sophia Marie, my sweet little bitter wisdom. <laughs> it's true. She is a provision. I trust that. I trust that the Lord will gift me wisdom. And I think about the preciousness of that life, and I think about the life that Jesus has to offer, and I'm reminded that we are called to be the agents of that life on this earth. Lord, would you strip us of our own hatred, of our own propensity toward death and deathly ways, our own bitterness, our own despair. I think about that precious baby and I'm reminded, I'm reminded that those who hate us are greatest enemies were once those precious children. And no matter what evil and darkness shaped them, no matter what hate raised them up to be, no matter what evil and, and filth pour forth from them, in God's eyes, they still are that precious child. Lord, would you deliver us of our hatred for people? Would you deliver us of the evil things we say and do towards those who think differently than us, who have not had the grace to be redeemed by your hand? Because we would be them, if not for you. My encouragement to us all this week is to be life wherever we go. This world is so full of death that we don't even bat an eye at it anymore. It is commonplace to us. And I mean that as death itself, literally people dying is mostly just a news story to us, isn't it? But even beyond that, death reigns. It reigns in the evil that is done, even evil that doesn't kill. That is all from death. And the secret to this story is that life wins. Life wins. And even death itself, death itself will be condemned to die. That's what Revelation teaches us. So why don't we do the work of removing deathly ways, deathly habits, the ways we let death reside in our hearts so that we could be agents of life today.
Let us begin that work. Let us continue that work this very day, this week. Let's be life to people who need it. And not forget that that very same life Jesus extended to us. Let me pray for you. <coughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for this, this group here tonight. Thank you for what you offer us through your Son, who is life itself. Lord, I pray each one of us would commit ourselves to life, commit ourselves to bless life and protect life, to save life when given the opportunity, to offer our testimony of our experience with life, you. Would you let the light of life that it says in John 1, you are the light of men. Would you let that shine in our hearts? Would you reveal darkness in our own hearts to us? Would you reveal death that we keep in our mind and in our hearts, Lord, so that we might remove it by asking you to do the work to remove it from our hearts and our lives? and we would work alongside you. Just like you said to the disciples, Lord, you are at work. Are there not 12 hours in the day, and we will work while it is day also, Lord. We commit our lives to you, Lord. We commit our being to you, Lord. Help each person in this room experience life yet again this week. Would you call to them would you call to your sheep this week? Remind them of who you are and that your ways are so different from this earth's ways. We love you. We praise your name. Lord, thank you that you've given of your spirit to us so that we might be like you. And we do all these things for your Father's glory, for your Father's name, that he might be made great throughout the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you all.